Did your loved one's alcoholism come as a surprise to you? What happened then? Welcome to episode 378 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Nancy, Diana, Bonnie, Joanne, Letitia, and Matt. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Nancy, Diana, Bonnie, Joanne, Letitia, and Matt, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves other than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today. And joining me is Leah. Welcome, Leah, to The Recovery Show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You brought a unique reading for us today. Can you tell us about it? Sure, I would love to. I wanted to share the impact letter that I wrote my husband because I think it shows the love and understanding that we have towards our loved ones that have addictions and also like the conflicting emotions that you can have when loving someone with a substance problem. So here's the letter that I wrote. Dear David, we said our goodbyes this afternoon. This is one of the first times we haven't been able to say goodnight to each other via phone, FaceTime, or in person. I hate that you're not with Jay and I, that's our son. You leave a huge void when you're gone. My mom just said what a tremendous guy you are and how proud she is that you're seeking treatment. You're the love of my life, my best friend. I tried to explain to your counselor what an amazing person you are and probably use more adjectives than a Trump speech, but you are my renaissance man. Today was so hard to see you tear up when we dropped you off. The last time I remember you crying was at our wedding. I hate to mention any events that cast you in a bad light because you were the strongest, smartest, most caring person and a wonderful husband and father. I do, however, have to mention that when I vowed till death in our marriage vows, I wasn't planning to be a widow at 36, nearly losing you the other night. The shock of it all really traumatized me. I know you were pretty upset when you found out I had researched divorce and custody laws. However, I need to set a safe boundary and know that our son will not be harmed or myself as collateral damage. I never stop loving you. I hate this disease. I don't blame you. It has been explained to me that your addiction led you to omit things from me and shroud your actions in secrecy. I was hurt because when I have a problem, you're the first person I want to tell. I thought you felt safe to confide in me. I was hoping you knew that I'm strong enough to tackle our problems together as a united front. You are my rock, and it really sucks to have to take control of our financial life. I don't want to be cast in the role of a crazy wife, checking your spending or tracking your location, so I know you're at work and not dead in a ditch. I know this is an illness and not a weakness or moral failing. I don't blame you. My fears are that my resentment will grow and ruin us if you can't overcome this addiction. 
continuing drinking will be like you throwing away our happiness with both hands. We've only been married for six years. You promised me forever not to die at 40, not to destroy yourself so you can't witness our son growing up. You'll be happy to know that I have been taking care of myself. Knowing that you're in a safe place is reassuring. Get well and return to us. We know you can overcome this. Writing this letter was cathartic. Thank you for reading it. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Tough to get through. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for sharing that. And that puts us, I think, right in the middle of your story. Right. So as we say, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and then what it's like now in the the sort of classic story form. Yeah, I would love to share my story with you. And I chose to read the letter aloud because I read it aloud to my Al-Anon group and everyone has a different relationship with what brought them to the program. But when I read it aloud in my Al-Anon group, every, every single person there related to it and shed a few tears. So I thought that might connect us on a level of how that is to to love and care for somebody that you, you feel mm-hmm. hurt by the disease. I wanted to share my story because I guess it's interesting in a way that my husband is actually a doctor and I work in the healthcare field. And I knew that he was always a heavy drinker, but in a way he hid the addiction from me. And I think a lot of the times I ignored it because there's such a pervasive drinking culture that the line was blurred for me, especially I'm a working mother in my thirties and the wine mom culture. And I had a bad day. I'm going to have a glass of wine. I had a good day. I'm going to have a glass of champagne. So for a lot of our time, I knew he'd he was a heavy drinker, but still went to work, still did what he needed to do. And you get so busy with your own, you know, what you're doing that a lot of things, I guess, I overlooked. Basically, the the long and short of it was that one night he had a medical emergency and I took him to the hospital. I worked. I thought he was having a stroke, but really it was his beginning liver failure at 40 just the shock of that, that that was my rock bottom of starting to uncover the things that had been hidden. A week later, I started going to Al-Anon and therapy and learning more about the disease of addiction. So that was where my journey started. I have heard many stories of people taking their loved one to the hospital, the emergency room, And the doctors or the nurses, whatever, the staff there, not even asking about alcohol. And I think it's probably worth saying at this point, you did write a book about your story. And I've read the book. And so I've got some knowledge in my head that you haven't said yet. So I might be asking questions that the listener is like, where did that come from? Because I was actually surprised in that point in the story where the doctor, the resident, whoever it was, took a blood alcohol test because I've heard so many people say that that wasn't even considered. And in fact, I think one of, one of the people that I know in in meetings here talks about, she had to bully them into checking the alcohol. And so I, I think it's hopefully a sign that the medical profession's getting a little more aware of this problem. 
Yeah, I would like to speak on that too. When I took my husband in, my background is I'm a speech therapist. So I thought my husband was having a stroke because of his his motor movements really off. His speech was really off. He was hemorrhaging blood. He had these really intense hiccups. And later on, I had found that was the beginning of multi-system failure. But when we checked in, they did a CT and EKG thinking that he was having a stroke of some sort, maybe like a TIA. But when his scans came back clear, I said, you need to either do a Lyme's panel and a blood alcohol panel. And that came from me. Yeah. And the nurse there too was like listening to my husband, that gibberish, which was from how severe his blood alcohol was. The ER doctor said it was the highest of anyone they've ever seen. And if he wasn't such a heavy drinker, he would have not lived through that. But the nurse was like, is he always like that? I'm like, no, he's really smart. It's like when you see someone talking like that, you assume all of these things about them. And and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book to dispel that stigma of addiction can happen to anyone. My mm-hmm. husband was a doctor. I have a master's degree. You think, oh, somebody that's an alcoholic is you think all the most terrible things about this person. And I want to dispel some of that, that it shouldn't have such a stigma associated to it, that everyone struggles at sometimes. And that's why I wanted to come on the show and write the book. It's helpful to just talk about our struggles and help one another. Yeah, I I had that same sort of feeling about alcoholics. My wife can't be an alcoholic. She still has a good job. She's well-educated. She's not not drinking 40 ounces out of a paper bag or whatever. Mm -hmm. That sort of social, societal image of what an alcoholic is, I think we're getting better at that, but still... um, when you see that in you know, movies or, or TV shows or something, whatever, they don't show the high-function alcoholic who's getting along just fine until their body tells them. So, yeah, that's important. That is important. You talk about not recognizing his alcoholism. I think that is, for those of us who are in al I think that is not an unusual experience. For me, there were signs that I ignored. There were signs that I denied until it became like really obvious. And for you, it became obvious in this horrific event. That's such a good point because when I was writing the book, I had an editor look through it and was just like, how much of this was things that you recognize and how much are those things you chose even before you're in the program where you're like detaching with love or things like Mm -hmm. that. And the one thing that I feel a lot of shame about that I wrote about in the book of trying to clear my side of the street was that my daycare lady, uh, my my son is five now, but in the book, he was three. My date. Um, daycare provider told me that our son didn't want to be picked up by my husband. And I just assumed since I was a primary caregiver and he was little that he just preferred me. But as things started to unravel and I was seeing the whole picture that my, my husband wasn't present with our son, he would pick him up and just drink and watch TV and not really have anything to do with him. So the my you know three-year-old son was able to pick up on some of the things that either I chose to ignore or 
just wasn't seeing the whole picture. And I think hindsight is, you know, 2020. And I, I feel a lot of shame about that of should I have done things differently? Obviously, was lucky in that nothing happened to my son with my husband yeah. picking him up from daycare or after day drinking at work or whatnot. But I guess we just have to focus on today and focus on moving forward because a lot of that, obviously, I, I want to look back so I don't make the same mistakes. But again, you only can, you know, beat yourself up a certain amount. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, that whole thing of the danger that I didn't see. Oh, how often was my loved one driving our kids while she was drunk? And and this is where it sneaks up also because I could see her drinking at home in the evening. But I didn't see when she started having some wine with lunch or whatever it was. I didn't see that. Yeah, I don't know if I saw that ever really until she talked about it. I didn't see her drinking in the parking lot at the grocery store crazy stuff that uh, maybe I didn't want to know it, but she wasn't bringing it to my attention. That's for sure. For sure. And I appreciate you saying that because the night after my husband's medical emergency, I had a friend come over and that's when we basically ransacked our whole house and found secret stashes pretty much everywhere. The house was swimming with booze. And that's the point of that betrayal of you almost feel gaslighted in a way. You just feel like, what have I missed? It's like, you almost feel like I've been married to somebody I don't even know. And my friend that helped us clear out our house the night my husband almost overdosed, there were like 16 mini bottles under his work desk. He never let me go into his office. He always had the door closed. He didn't want me cleaning up after his soda cans because there was vodka in the soda cans. He wasn't intentionally trying to deceive me. That's just the, the addiction process and feeling shame. Later on, once you're moving ahead in, in your program and getting well, things like that, would, my husband's office door would be closed. It would be almost triggering for me in a way. Being in the program and trying to focus on myself, one thing that really helped me through that was saying this phrase to myself of, if you focus on the hurt, you'll continue to suffer. But if you focus on the lesson, you'll continue to grow. So for me, that was like anytime I felt like I was feeling those feelings of anxiety, of recollections of things that happened that just focus in on what's the lesson? The lesson is that some good came out of this. I learned lessons. I am more brave now. I have a community of people that love and accept me that I'm stronger than I was. And that's why the book came about because writing for me was so, so therapeutic and sharing my story. I felt that would help someone else feel less alone. I really expressed a lot of of my feelings and my process from mm -hmm. being where I was with my husband's medical emergency to understanding more about the disease and focusing on myself and my progress. So I wanted someone else to see that progress and maybe my thought process and maybe they would be able to relate to some of the themes that I was talking about. Yeah, I connected with a lot of it myself. I want to go back and look at that crisis moment just to make sure that I've got it right. He had this medical breakdown. You took him to the hospital. They diagnosed eventually with your encouragement. They found the alcohol level. And so what happens at that point? Is he admitted to the hospital? You had time to go home yeah. and de-alcohol the house, right? 
Yeah, so basically the process was I asked the ER physician if it was safe to take my husband home. And shockingly, he said yes, because I thought that he needed to be admitted right away because he he was having liver failure and and everything. And it was alcohol-based delirium. So that's why he seemed like he was showing like signs of stroke because it was he had full body tremors, delirium, all that. Luckily, in a way, my husband's uncle had gone to a rehab program. And I think whatever the ER doctor said finally caused my husband to see the light. And he actually contacted his uncle who referred him to a a rehab program. And within a week, my husband voluntarily went to rehab. But in the interim time, I was staying up with him at night, just watching full body tremors. I was giving him small amounts of alcohol so he wouldn't go into shock as advised by the, the therapist at the rehab center that we couldn't get him in for a week because they didn't have an available bed. But in that meantime, I watched him like a hawk to get him into rehab. He was in such bad shape that he wasn't a three-day detox, 24-hour monitoring. And they called me at work when he was at detox and said he was doing so badly that he was having full body tremors and they weren't sure he was going to pull out of it. So you took him home from the ER? Yes, they said that he didn't need to stay there, which I was shocked about. And then they said that he should go to inpatient, which was shocking to me. So then you monitored his detox for a while, giving him alcohol so that he didn't have a seizure? Yeah, basically, because when we had contacted the the inpatient rehab center, they said pretty much continue to do what you're doing, Uh. because if you go from... 100 to zero. Oh god that's dangerous it's really it's dangerous so dangerous and that's what just really sucks about this addiction it's like he almost died before rehab and during it's just like yeah, yeah. what a terrible disease my uncle told me a, a story of his bottom he was a, a very heavy drinker and he i don't remember how he ended up talking to to a doctor but he said i want to quit but i'm going on this week-long sailing trip should i just quit and the doctor said how much do you drink and he said it's about a bottle of liquor a day and the doctor said no (laughs) take some with you because you you can't just quit cold turkey like that and then when you come back come in for medical detox so that we can do it safely i'm like oh wow because i didn't know that no, that was the same advice that we had been told of. It's almost as dangerous to just cold turkey stop without medical monitoring. It can put a shock on your body. And again, I'm not a therapist. I'm not giving any medical advice, but that was what I was advised yeah, with yeah. my husband. And then he got into a rehab facility and it was for medical professionals. So it was a, a special program just for doctors, nurses, healthcare providers, that sort mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they did a medical detox there. Yes. Is that what I understand? And then he went into uh, long-term treatment of some sort. Yeah, it was at the same facility. But yeah, they had a, a special detox program. And then he was he was sent to his floor with the other healthcare providers for seven weeks. 
again, from reading the book, comparing your experience with the rehab to, to my experience and all of the rehab facilities that I'm familiar with, there's always some family involvement. The place that, that my wife went for her long-term residential, every Wednesday they had a, a program that there was a lecture in the morning and then there was a group therapy and then there, I think we met with the individual therapist in the afternoon or whatever. And this one that you described sounds like there were some more intense, longer sessions that you had. Is that right? Yes. I tried to visit my husband like during visiting hours. Pretty much I went every week. On Sundays, it was like you had a, a, a short visit. But um, we had marriage counseling over the phone once a week. And then I went for a three-day pretty intensive family training program at the request of the rehab center. Mm-hmm. I think partially that was for a lot of the medical professionals had to go into sober living as a stipulation of retaining their medical license. Mm-hmm. Luckily, in my husband's case, that he didn't have any criminal or professional problems. I had intervened before any of that sort of stuff happened. That's actually pretty amazing, I think, that if he was drinking that heavily, that it hadn't caused problems for him. That just shows how intelligent he is. It's just, <laughs> I guess you only so. <laughs> use your power for good or do better than the most average people. And I was just like, that is unfair that you're that smart. But yeah, basically they, not that it was a stipulation per se, but he would be released home given I did the training and that sort of thing and wouldn't have to go to uh, sober living. So that three days... Was there things that happened during that time that also maybe boosted your recovery? That Because you were going to Al-Anon at this point, but it probably was pretty early in your program, right? Yeah, they had a full day like marriage counseling program of my husband and I at the rehab facility. Basically, we're in the therapist's office and I just break down. At that point, I... I just went into this hot mess status and I found myself just crying and just breaking down and just saying, I don't know who I am anymore. I think maybe a lot of people hopefully can relate to that feeling of being a caregiver and just that codependent where it's like you've put yourself last on the back burner that there's like nothing left. And at that point, I was just so burnt out that It was ironic in a way. It's like, here we are trying to work on a more pressing issue, and I'm just like falling to pieces. The counselor was just like, you need to learn and set boundaries. You need to work on your self-care and really just gave me a tough love talk about putting on my oxygen mask, which she saved my life. She really called me to the carpet on my things, and I Mm -hmm. appreciate that because I did have to clean up my side of the street. And after that point, it was gradual, but I started to put myself first and try new hobbies and new activities and uh, learning those self-care practices. Certainly, my codependency was like, I'm going to do these things because it will help her get better. How much were you feeling like that? Or how much were you saying, actually, also, I'm doing this so that I could get better? Yeah, when I started to think more of it, I found that the codependency was almost like a character defect that I had beginning as like a small child. 
always wanted to be a pleaser, always wanted to acquiesce so someone else's feelings weren't hurt. And I just started to realize that by doing so much for other people was really hurting me. I work in a a helping field and, and I was a mother and I was doing all these volunteer things and you think, oh, these are all great things. But then you're like, wait a second, like these, if you take it too far, this could be a character defect. <laughs> so I didn't think so much. It was only my husband. It was something that I, I had, that was my, my side of the street that I needed to work on. Mm-hmm. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Makes perfect sense. I started to recognize that things I thought were good traits were hurting me. Maybe other people in my life were happy, but by hurting myself of not setting boundaries or putting my needs first, I was just really hurting myself. And the therapist at the rehab center actually told me that by intervening and doing all these things for other people, you're actually hurting them because you're taking an opportunity away from them to do something for themselves and to learn the coping skills and to have the consequences of their own actions fall on the person that chose to do them. Mm -hmm. So when I changed my frame of thinking for that, that I needed to change from that martyr role. And, And that helped my husband, it helped my son, it helped me have boundaries. It was really life changing. So the therapist really did help me a lot. So you've got a three year old son when you went to visit, like during visiting hours, did you bring him along? Could you bring him along? Yes, he came every time. And it was really nice to see because I would bring like a new toy for our son. And that was really something my husband looked forward to of seeing our son. And I could just see that them playing together to see the light in my husband's eyes of he was coming back to life. I don't know if if that was your experience, but when I would look at my husband during active addiction, he was like dead in his eyes. There wasn't a twinkle, but then seeing him be present with our son and seeing some light back in his eyes was was really hopeful for me and that I really commend my husband for doing the hard work to break the cycle of addiction because our son would, you know, be the fourth generation of this disease. Mm-hmm. We necessarily can't change the genetic. There's a genetic component to this disease, but by showing our son healthy coping strategies and things like that and not modeling the behavior. And I I chose sobriety because I wanted to support my husband, but also I recognized that I could do healthier things to cope with my feelings and model for our son how to to cope with pain or things that don't go my way in in healthier ways. So that Mm -hmm. was my choice. In my case, I felt it wasn't fair to expect something for my husband that I wasn't able to do myself. So we've been doing the sobriety journey together. That's cool. So for this three-day visit, you probably couldn't bring your son along for that, huh? No, I actually had my parents come up and stay with him. And my son was so attached to me that when I called my mom to ask them to come up from New York, I live in Pennsylvania, my mom was like, I don't think that he'll be okay. He's never been away from you for three days. And I just told her, I think he'll be better if his dad is alive and at home and missing me for three days. And it was just funny because my son was fine about them staying with us. But at one point, he went to my mom and said, 
where's my mommy? Like in a way, like I was being held hostage, which was not unentirely true. (laughs) Yeah, not entirely false. You're being held hostage by your husband's disease. Yeah. In a very real way. Little kids are so perceptive. I mean, just looking back on it, that he recognized some things that I didn't see. They're always watching these little Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Going back to the book, you do talk about changing the way that you relate to the other people in your life, your husband in particular, in terms of how you care for and support your loved ones. How do you see that those changes came about? Were there particular things that happened that kind of like eliminated something for you or was it more gradual? I think it was gradual in a way, but I did try to use a slogan. I don't know if it's a slogan, but I had sort of a grandma in Al-Anon and she said, don't kiss with a sniff. That's a wonderful expression. (laughs) That meant you do your program as he does his thing. Don't second guess everything he's doing. Focus on yourself. So for me, I try to put one foot in front of another, like small things at first, like I'm going to go take a yoga class and leave my son with my husband. And then you work up gradually. Oh, I might go overnight somewhere and leave them and that sort of thing. In a way, I had to learn who I was again, because in my case, I was a codependent and took care of everybody where I didn't even really know what I liked anymore. I didn't really have time for hobbies and things like that. So I had to relearn like what I even liked and that. So it was slow at first, but then by putting myself out there and getting more self-esteem and then being more brave, now I run my own business. I wrote a book and things like that, where there are small steps at first, Mm -hmm. like I'm Mm -hmm. going to go get a coffee by myself. Just being unencumbered and by yourself when you're a codependent is huge in a way, but walking on that journey and getting more strength and, and, and learning about yourself again. And then eventually you look back two and a half years later and I'm like, wow, I left a job where I felt like I was a codependent to my boss in a way. You look back and you're like, I can't believe I put up with that kind of stuff at that point. You have such low self-esteem that the things even that are outside of your your relationship with the alcoholic that I, I looked back and I was like, I can't believe I put up with those kind of things. And you don't recognize that until you're more healthy and you can put the principles into place. At least that was my experience. Yeah, You talk about having to learn what you liked. I definitely connect to that. I I get really annoyed. I'll just say annoyed when I like sign on to a website and it wants me to be able to answer some questions for identity recovery or whatever. And they always have these questions about favorite. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what my favorite food is. And I just recently realized that maybe, and this is for a computer, but in in a context where I'm interacting with somebody else and I'm supposed to express a favorite, I think that I still have a little fear of, what if you don't like that? What if I say, my favorite color is purple, and you're like, oh, why would that be your favorite color? No, I know what you what you mean. I guess it's hard to see what the disease like does to us. I always 
thought I was an independent career woman. And then when the therapists were like, you're an enabler codependent. I'm like, I'm a what now? I don't know. I felt like I turned into somebody I almost didn't recognize. And I think maybe some of the things about learning about ourselves again, we just have to give ourselves, I know a lot of the members of Al-Anon just said, give yourself time. It takes time. Give yourself some some kindness mm-hmm. that you don't realize that maybe the disease takes on different parts of you that you don't recognize. And maybe it just, the healing process takes time. Yeah, it does. It does. Somebody I was talking to recently talked about Al-Anon time, about things happening in Al-Anon time, which is, we give it that time for, for things to happen. I was taken by the description of the preparations you made for him coming home from recovery because I remember what I felt when it was time for my wife to come home from her residential treatment. And we're different people. I was not focusing on cleaning and all that stuff. <laughs> but there were some things that, that I resonated with, the what if I do something that causes her to drink again mm-hmm. kind of thing? So what do you remember that you were feeling in that time, however long it was where you were like, oh, he's coming home. I have to get ready. What were you feeling? What were you fearing? What were you expecting? And of course, what did you do? <laughs> like I said, I was very anxious. I know we can't really seek advice in Al-Anon, but uh, a lot of the members of the group said things like, don't kiss with a sniff, focus on your program, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It shows you like how neurotic sometimes the disease makes you. I called the marriage therapist and I was like, David's coming home. What do I do? She was just like, he's your David. That's all she said. That's your person. You are married to him. You should know how to like interact with them. And in a way, I just was wondering, like, how do I even act? I felt like I was starting in a new relationship because you're learning new behaviors and you're, the way you interact is different. You never lived with him sober. No. Yeah, it's going to be different. And you don't know what it's going to be. Honestly, no. And, and two, I felt that in my husband's case, because we, we had done the different marriage exercises, I was just like the weak link in marriage counseling. I, <laughs> it was like he, he did every exercise right, and the therapist, yay, go David. And then I couldn't even get through the I statements. And I'm just like, I'm trying here. But I felt like he was so far ahead in his recovery because he had been at rehab focusing on it 24-7. Here I am just trying to keep my head above water and like I'm doing the best I can, but I'm trying to keep a small child alive and our pets and around the household and do X, Y, and Z. It's it's not fair, is it? No, I'm just like, I'm trying here three hours a week as opposed to doing it every day. Just focusing on it. I just didn't feel I was as far along as he was. So I, I felt a little overwhelmed by the process, but I tried to put in the principles in place, like easy does it, take deep breaths. I, I, th- I guess I thought a lot about about the beginning of our relationship, almost like our dating relationship of trying to get to know the person again. I don't know if my mind went back there because it's like you are in a way almost learning a different person. The thing that terrified me was when the therapist would say, he might be different than how you 
Yeah. Remember, he might not like the same things. <laughs> and in the back of your mind as a codependent, well, they don't want, want me anymore. They don't love me. Maybe he'll get sober and leave me after all this. I guess I had to start in the beginning of just trying to get to know him while also trying to get to know myself again. You're almost right. like learning to love yourself again. So mm-hmm. it's twofold. Mm-hmm. Was it you or is it something else I was reading where you used the word soulmate? Did you use the word soulmate in your book? Mm-hmm. So I recall when you you met him, when you guys got married, I think in the book you said you felt like he was your soulmate. And I have to ask, when you put that much of yourself onto another person and then he turns out not mm-hmm. to be the support that you thought he was and now he's coming mm-hmm. home and he's different is that's got to be a little scarier than if it was like yeah okay we're married oh for sure i'd like to say i was like devoted to him the whole time but i did think about divorcing him i did think about researching custody laws i had to think about my health and safety and our sons mm-hmm. i think in my case like i felt like a soulmate is somebody that sort of gets you mm-hmm. like your mm-hmm. core okay. but it wasn't like a perfect relationship but he seemed to get me to my core of that he knew that for me i wasn't into like materialistic things we both had this heart of wanting to make the world a better place of wanting to help other people, of care of animals and family values. When I was pregnant, I was sick almost every single day. And he was a person that was always taking care of me. The addiction kind of ebbed and flowed and he would be there when I needed him. And I thought in the back of my mind, when when I was having a hard time, he was always there for me. Like, We were only dating for two months and he volunteered to go with me to my grandma's funeral in Minnesota. Our plane had an emergency landing and he's sitting there with me in the the baggage claim being like, it'll be okay. He was always that person. You know, there were times that were, I wanted to wring his neck from urinating in the bed or walking into a wall or doing X, Y, or Z. But at the end of the day, when... I was at my lowest point. He was the one that I wanted to tell. That I knew that in a way he saw me. I am, I think, a little girl inside of wanting that like validation and wanting someone to be like, I accept you. You're okay. And he could see through that. Mm-hmm. What you said there, it took me back to this sentence in the letter that you read at the beginning. I was hurt because when I have a problem, you're the first person I want to tell. I thought you felt safe to confide in me. And so while you were feeling like he knew all of you at the same time, he was hiding a really important Mm -hmm. part of himself. How do you get over that? That was the part that just wrecked me because I I think I told you I'm a speech therapist, so I, I work primarily with pediatrics, with people that have all sorts of disorders. And I chose this career because I want to help people that have problems live meaningful lives. So the fact that my husband, who I considered my soulmate, didn't tell me he had a disease and hid it from me was really hard for me to come to grips with because Mm -hmm. that kind of went against who I was that I wanted an honest relationship, that I work with people that have problems and I'm okay with that. I would have accepted him if he had been upfront with me about I'm having this problem. And I told him about problems I had. I'm 
have anxiety or things like that. And I remember when I was in the therapist's office, I wasn't mad about the addiction. I was mad about him not coming clean to me. I was mad of of being betrayed and lied to. So what helped you to get over that? Yeah, I appreciate you, you asking that. i asking because there's somebody out there listening, at least one oh, somebody yes. listening who is feeling betrayed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was mad as hell. I was mad as hell at him. I actually had what I, what I call as a burn book. And it was a journal that I just wrote terrible things about however I was feeling or however I perceived it. And also what helped me too was to learn more about the disease and learn more about the fact that he wasn't intentionally trying to shroud his actions in secrecy or betray me, but his addiction, I thought about it more of his addiction had programmed him to do that. So what sort of helped me, and I don't know if this is exactly accurate, but I perceived him as being sort of like, <laughs> like the devil had taken hold of him in a way. Mm-hmm. I wasn't mad at him. I was mad at his disease. So I tried to separate him from the devil of addiction, that he had this devil that was making him do terrible things and that he was sick. It wasn't the David that I knew and loved when I had rage or anger, I would write in this burn book, whatever I wanted to say. And then also to focus on what I could control and what I could feel like the finances or going to work of things that like I could focus on. I'm going to be okay if we're not together. I have a job. I'm, I'm going to be able to make the bills. I've got a will. Things for me of like Financially, this is going to work out and I'm going to be okay. And also that I focused on, I'm not perfect either. I have character defects. I'm going to focus on things that mm, my side of the street, I could probably call myself on the carpet about a couple of things that I need to work on too and notice that we're not all perfect. And those were what I tried to do. Hopefully that that helps someone. For me, this is the other meaning of detachment. Right. There's the kind of detachment where I am me, you are you. We can come together in healthy ways, but I don't have to live your life. I don't have to fix your life. And that's one of the, one of the meanings that, that I have learned in this program about detachment. The other one is what you said about there is this disease that is affecting the way he acts, but it's not him. And that was key for me in being able to say, yes, I can stay married to this person who is still drinking because I hate the actions, Mm -hmm. but I love the person. It took me a while to get there, I will say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That did not happen like my first week in Al-Anon. It did not happen my first year in Al-Anon, okay? Yeah, that's so important to also to finding forgiveness and letting go of old resentments, at least for me. I I love how you said that because I started to go to Al-Anon and get therapy. It wasn't actually to put myself first at that point, but it was to, I recognized that resentment was eating me up inside and I was becoming a bitter, angry person that I 
didn't recognize. Like I was always a person that like jumped out of bed and was happy and cheerful and giddy. And there was a part in my book that I think that maybe people can relate to this song by um, Bon Iver, where it said, a heart strained in anger grows weak and grows bitter, wrapped up in a chain of our very own sorrow. And for me, I didn't want to be full of that bitterness and unhappiness for myself or my son. I think people out, outside of this program may not understand that resentment. It just burns. It just like eats you alive. Mm-hmm. And I just, mm-hmm. I started to recognize how unhealthy that made me. And I recognize that even if I chose not to stay married to my husband, that unless I got help for dealing with that and worked mm-hmm. on myself, that, that would ruin my life. That would still be there, huh? Yeah, that would still be there if, if I was chose to be married or not. And I recognized that was hurting me where I was like a different mother than I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be that bitter, angry person for my son. The epigraph for your book, the little quote at the beginning of the book from T.S. Eliot, it is never too late to be what you might have been. So how do you see that this is true for you now? Oh, yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I actually thought it was good for me because I feel like from this whole experience, I do feel like braver and I do feel like now I'm starting to live for me. I feel like more alive. I feel like I'm willing to take more risks. I said in the the last page of my book where after a year of sobriety, I took a sip of lemonade And I realized that my senses were so much more acute. I don't know if it was just being more mindful and being aware, but I just felt like I was starting to really live. Like I was starting to really live each day of trying to just recognize that we have the short amount of time and I'm just going to go for it. And I just felt like in a part of my life, I really learned some really hard but wise lessons of I'm not going to be scared. I'm going to be brave and I'm going to go after it and live the life that I want. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery where we talk about how recovery is working in our daily lives and in our meetings. I always ask my guests to pick music. What is the first song that you picked? Our first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at the recovery.show slash 378 is Bon Iver, Bruised Orange. I picked this because the song was in my book because the lyrics described how I felt about addiction. Heart strained in anger, grows weak and grows bitter, wrapped up in a chain of your very own sorrow. And I didn't want to be full of bitterness and unhappiness for myself or my son. It's hard to explain the resentment you feel toward addiction, but I felt that this song seemed to tap into that. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? And I'll go ahead because you've been talking a lot. Yesterday morning, my own meeting, we were on Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out, if I have that correct. This is a step that, I don't know, struggles the right word. It's a step that I feel that I'm not 
living to its its fullest potential. And we read from one of the Alnon literature that, about the step, and and in there it says something about setting aside time every day, maybe just a few minutes, and that is one of the places where I struggle with this step because I have not set aside time. There's not a time in my day that this is my prayer and meditation time. And people are like, well, I do it when I get up. I do it right before I go to bed. Or, And I have these intentions to do that. And then it doesn't happen. So what I realized was, and what I shared in the meeting is that I enrolled in a medical study about blood pressure. And part of being in that study is I have to take my blood pressure regularly. And they're saying at least once a week. And what I thought was if I took my blood pressure every morning before I have my coffee, which raises my blood pressure, I'm supposed to sit still and relax for, I've heard different numbers, I think a minute five minutes, something like that, before taking my blood pressure. And I thought, okay, so if I'm doing this, I could use that time for meditation. So I'm going to try that. I I did not succeed in doing that this morning. I was reading something instead of meditating, but I have that time, and I can designate that time. And I've been in this program a long time, and... This is a step that I sometimes have been good at and and a lot of times not. And so I'm trying again, always looking for the progress, never looking for the perfection. That's the thing that came up for me this week. How about you? I think it's so powerful what you said, and I can relate to that being like a working mom. And for me, I aspire to do more of what I call like a walking meditation Say you're getting your cup of coffee and you're just like mindful in a way. The mug feels warm and I'm sensing the aroma or something like that of just being like mindful. I don't know. That's kind of how I fit it into my day. And I was just going to say in my Elanon meeting this week, I had mentioned that I, I was going to do this podcast and it really like touched my heart because the the chair of our program has been and in Al-Anon for 52 years. And she just gave me like a beautiful analogy. She just said, your book is little, but it's like a dandelion with its seeds spreading the message of hope into the world. And it sort of just made me feel proud because that was the rationale of why I wrote it is like, it was my 12th step in a way where I wanted to share my story for the vision I had in my head was me, the person that I spent all night crying and I'm in my bed trying to wake up and get ready for the day when you just feel so lost and alone and mm-hmm. hurt. And and I just felt that even if it's just one person that really reads it and maybe thinks I can get out of bed today, maybe there's some hope for me. I can get some lesson out of this terrible situation. And also one thing about this, you think about all the work you're doing in the program and you think, Am I really like making progress? I feel like I'm really investing a lot of time and and into this. Maybe on a day-to-day basis, you don't really see that progress. But my kindergarten son brought home a paper and he wrote on the paper, one thing I like about myself is that I'm happy. And I immediately went to my husband and I just thanked him. Thank you for all the effort that you're putting into recovery. You know, he's only five, so he can't really 
explain further. But for me, that meant that that he his dad's alive and he's present with him, and that that we're trying to work on being a healthy family for him. That just kind of made my heart feel happy that he feels happy and good about himself. Let's talk about the book for a minute, because we've been talking about the book, but we haven't talked about the book, if you know what I mean. So you called the book Fireflies. Yep. Why? Well, Fireflies actually is funny because my husband actually proposed to me in front of our house during June when all the fireflies were out. And I thought Fireflies was a really nice analogy because fireflies are if you're not from the country like me, are beetles. And they communicate through bioluminescence to each other by flickering light to one another. And I just thought that was a beautiful analogy. And that's why we come together is in in our community, our addiction community, is we're trying to bring light to one another and hope. And I thought that might be a nice analogy of there's a lot of darkness. You hear, you go to a meetings and you hear a lot of darkness. There's other people in the meeting that share light and hope and their strength. We're always trying to share that. And I thought maybe someone, my story is fortunate that it had a happy ending. And I thought that maybe someone would want to hear that there is some light and there is some hope. Okay. So it's called Fireflies. And I will put a link on the website at, at in the show notes at the recovery.show slash 378 to where you can buy it on Amazon unless there's a better place for people to buy it. Nope, and, that's Amazon. And I'm actually um, going to record an audio book. So okay. if, I'm going to work on that. So it should probably be in the next month or so. Cool. So if, if somebody wants to read the book, they can go get it there. So this is interesting. Normally, when I talk about upcoming, that's like something that I actually have planned. But you put something in here. And I'm curious about this. Is this something that you would like to talk about at some point or what? I just thought sometimes it's like heavy and I didn't want people to think my book was like all serious because I'm like snarky and weird. And, and I just thought it was really funny because I feel like our higher power sometimes has little serendipitous moments mm-hmm. where it's like funny things happen that can bring a little levity. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like, I used humor and especially dark and sarcastic humor to to deal with a lot of the darkness of addiction. And there was just a really funny passage in the book that I wanted to share with you. Mm-hmm. And so I'll read it if that's okay. Yeah. Said, so during the time when my husband was at rehab, my counselors all kept telling me the same thing, to look after myself, spend some time on self-care. Easier said than done with a hectic job, a small child, a husband in rehab, two cats and a dog, preparing for the holidays and existential dread. But being the overachiever, I gave it a try. I bought a ceramic craft kit and turned on a baking show once Jay, my son, was in bed. It all started out so well. Painting was always therapeutic for me. I used to paint the rooms of our house and thought nothing of downing a few drinks in the middle of the day. But not anymore with an alcoholic husband, but back in the day. I looked up from my craft to see something moving outside the back door. It was a wild possum, a pointy-faced mammal the size of a cat with a terrifying razor-sharp fangs and a hairless rope-like tail that resembled a giant rat. I know they're shy night creatures, and many people think they're cute, but it startled me, and I screamed. Being a three-year-old boy... Jay made sure to bring up the possum as much as possible. 
he told all the other patients at rehab. They thought it was hysterical. This fearless young heroine was brought down by a possum. Possums are scary. I agree. (laughs) But I just thought that was funny because I feel like in a way, like maybe your higher power just throws a little wrench in the system, just make you just laugh and... You yeah. kind of think, I don't know. It oh, that's wonderful. It kind of funny. That's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. So if you want to share your story of humor and self-care amid the darkness and in recovery, you can send us an email or a voicemail. Leah, how can people send us feedback? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8798. Call right now to, and the number is 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions about today's topic, or any of our upcoming topics. Which we haven't talked about, but that's okay. Maybe humor. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a topic you'd like to talk to us about, let us know. We do have an email list if you want advance notice. Sometimes I will send out an email about a topic that's coming up so you can contribute, and you can get on that list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email, please, in the subject line. That makes it a lot easier for me to spot and make sure that I don't miss adding you to the email list. Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, which includes mostly these days notes for each episode, but also links to the books that we read from or that we talked about, videos for the music that we chose, and there's some links to some other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And now we'll take a short break before we look at Your feedback and our second musical selection, also available on the website, is what? So our second song is Trouble by Cage the Elephant. And I picked this one because when my husband was in rehab, I would just turn the song on blast while driving to rehab with my son in the car. And he knows like all of the lyrics. And now let's hear from you. Martha writes, Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for taking the time to respond so compassionately. I appreciate your words of understanding about my 45-year-old alcoholic son who lives with me and is often verbally abusive. He has been drinking heavily since he was 20 and believes that life without alcohol is not worth living. With only 16% of his liver left and having cirrhosis and a smoker who won't quit, so no transplant, He is in a slow suicide if he continues drinking like he is doing. He is also single, no girlfriend, and long estranged from his father and only sibling. Too many DUIs, no transport, and no employment resume, as he's never worked, but managed to live on an account his father established at birth. Divorced for many years, I lead a simple life in retirement and do take care of myself. What I really struggle with is his dying. And with only 16% of his liver and active consumption... He most definitely is. How does Alanon help with that? I can set boundaries to protect myself and I don't pick up the rope and I'm not the cause, but how in the world do I 
let go of his dying right in front of me. I realize parents lose children from horrible diseases, car crashes, suicide. I am waiting, waiting, waiting for the other shoe to drop. How does Elanon help me wait? Martha, well, the first thing I might note is that alcoholism is a horrible disease, and it can take a long time to kill somebody. How does Elanon help? How did Elanon help me? I've not been in this particular situation, but as my parents were dying of dementia over the last several years, the tools that I learned in the program helped me to be present with them and to not obsess over the fact that they were going to die. I didn't know what course their disease would take before then. I could let go of the wish that they were who they used to be and be present to the people that they had become as their disease took away more and more of them. I could use detachment to separate them from their disease and in particular from the symptoms of their disease, which very much like alcoholism exhibited in behavior, I could detach my wishes and my frustrations from what was actually happening. I could be content to look at the same photo album with my father over and over because he enjoyed doing it. I could remain calm, I'll say mostly, as my mother railed at us in the anger that was brought on by her disease. And I could be patient as she picked very slowly at her food. Slogans like, one day at a time, live and let live, and there but for the grace of God reminded me of the ways to act that made our time together more pleasant for all of us, and an understanding that I might be there someday, and I would hope for the same from my caregivers. They also remind me, these slogans, that the only time I really have is now. I knew that my parents weren't going to get better, and I knew that the time they had left was probably not very long. Alanon helped me to make the most of that time. Those are some ways in which Alanon helped me to live into, live with the fact that my parents were dying of a disease that, honestly, I hated. No question about that. Jane says, Dear Spencer and Recovery Show, my name is Jane from Ireland, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon and listener to your podcast when time allows. I have a quandary that I cannot seem to fathom out in my head despite my best efforts, and I would like to put it out there to you and the universe in the hope that I can gain some clarity. I have been with my partner for 15 years. He is the alcoholic in my life. Whilst he may have drunk every two or three years, as we know, the disease progresses, and every time it takes longer to gather himself mentally, physically, and spiritually. We lived together until April 2020 when his behavior became unacceptable, psychotic, and I asked him to leave for my own protection and that of my 19-year-old son, who has a personality disorder and was quite fragile at that time. Eventually, after police, hospitals, court cases, social services, and much angst, in June 2019, I secured him a residential rehab for three months. That is when I started my own recovery process and continued to work at it one day at a time. My partner has been sober since then, moved from rehab to a transition house, and now lives in the next step-up house in the closest city to me, about 45 kilometers away. We have worked hard on our relationship, our character defects, my previous need to fix him, and we have reached a form of equilibrium, which isn't perfect, 
but one in which he does his recovery, AA service, work, whatever he needs to do, and I attend Al-Anon, work as a theater ICU nurse, etc., and we meet up perhaps every other weekend. So it's kind of like dating again, not easy, but doable. My problem is his narcissistic 26-year-old daughter who pops in and out of his life when she needs money or attention. She is manipulative, needy, lies to get what she wants, and does not seek help for herself. Indeed, it's everyone else's fault she is like this. Seems familiar. I do not ask about her because to do so would achieve nothing but anger and frustration. However, I know when she has made an appearance because his behavior changes. He's guarded with the mobile phone or has it on silent. His sleep pattern goes to hell, and he is more moody and has low self-esteem. He wants to fix her, make up for the years her mother wouldn't let him see her, etc., I've listened to podcasts about forgiveness, resentment, gratitude, which I practice every day. I have boundaries with people, my hula hoop, I call it. I walk in the forest. I practice homeopathy. I sleep well. I eat healthy. But it's like she's my nemesis and will undo all the work my partner and I have done for ourselves. I would never ask him to choose me over her, but every time he says he will detach, she finds a way to get back into his life. He feels guilt and the vicious cycle of emotional bullying demands, and abuse starts over again from her. In the 15 years I have been with my partner, she has never once sent a birthday card, bought him a cup of coffee, and never not had an agenda. I've taken these last two weeks to step back and try to reason with myself. She is his daughter. Blood is thicker than water. Her healing has to start with her. Don't react to her or him. I'm quite a logical person, really. But this is beginning to eat me up, and I fear the only way to protect my own recovery and mental health is to walk away. I don't want to control him or anyone. If we make it as a couple, we make it a day at a time. But her being in his life is affecting my recovery, so now it's a problem. And I don't know what to do. So I'm offering it up to you and your listeners. Please share. Blessings, Jane. People. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. Something like that. In the end, it is his problem, not yours. I understand that it is affecting you very clearly. The tools that I might suggest are the same tools that I often talk about, detachment and acceptance. Here you say, I know when she has made an appearance because his behavior changes. What changes in the way you perceive that if you say instead, I know when he's been drinking because his behavior changes? Does that make it easier to see what you might do, easier to detach or not. I think acceptance that she is who she is, you can't change her, he's not going to change her, and you can't change him. It just sounds like if you want to keep him in your life, which it sounds like you do, that the only way to have some peace of mind is to let go of how she affects him and to let go of her actions. I know it's not easy, but that's the only thing I've got. But maybe somebody listening right now, maybe you listening right now, have some other suggestions. Maybe you've been in this place and you can share your experience, strength, and hope about what you did. Please call, leave a voicemail, Right? And let us know what happened to you, how you lived through this, how you lived into this, whatever 
Sue writes, Hi, Spencer. I am Sue. Would love to hear more shares on enabling. I thought I was the only one who could help my son. And after attending this program, I realized I am enabling him all these years. And I always blame other family members who don't join me and support me. I love the show and look forward to hearing back. I found episodes 11 and 261 are explicitly about enabling. Those would be at therecovery.show slash 11 and therecovery.show slash 261. You can also search on the website for other episodes that include some mention of enabling. If you're on a computer, there's a search box on the right side of the screen into which you can just type the word enabling. On a phone or a tablet, I'm going to tap on the, what I've often called the hamburger menu, the little three horizontal lines icon at the top of the screen, and then tap on search to get to a page where you can type enabling, or you can tap on enabling in the tags list at, at the bottom of that page. And that will take you to a number of episodes where the word enabling is mentioned or where there's some, some talk about enabling. And, and when I looked at that, a couple of the episodes that come up near the top of the list are listeners sharing their story that includes some talk about enabling and maybe how they stopped doing it. So there's some ideas. Amanda writes, hello, my name is Amanda. I live in Montana. I just listened to Progress Not Perfection, episode 29, and really appreciated it today. I felt a little stuck in the mud the last few days, becoming acutely aware of my character defect of being very critical of those often closest to me. I am trying to stop my words as they start. I'm apparently being given multiple opportunities to address this character defect. It has been a bit of a strain on my thinking and my attitude toward myself. This episode reminded me to focus on my progress and not so much on my immediate mistakes. It reminded me that I need to give myself grace and accept myself as I work through these issues. It reminded me that I'm human. It reminded me that I've come a long way, and it reminded me to just continue to move forward. And when I'm doing that, I'm doing the best I can. Thank you so much for all these amazing episodes that you have produced over the years. They have helped me during difficult times and during times when I'm doing well. I feel so encouraged to learn more, and I will always come back. I hope you're all having a peaceful and serenity-filled day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amanda. And I, too, am often given multiple opportunities to recognize and address my character defects. I had a conversation with one of my children recently who was talking about his frustration at the way he reacts to, I'll say, provocations by his loved one. I simply, what I have seen about my own behavior is that when I identify something that I don't like that I do, it always starts by recognizing it after the fact. And as I continue to recognize it and be willing to change, that recognition tends to get closer and closer after the fact, to the point where I start to become able to recognize it as I'm doing it, still do it, but I recognize, oh, whoops, can make some kind of amends immediately in that case. And eventually, to recognizing it before I do it, that I'm about to do this behavior that I don't want to do, and I can redirect myself and, and do something else instead or do nothing. So 
That is progress, and recognizing that progress is, I think, as you say, very important to seeing that I'm not just spinning my wheels in the mud or whatever. Thanks for writing, and that you're recognizing your progress. A different Amanda writes, Hi, Spencer. Here are some online meetings perhaps listeners might be interested in. In my experience, these meetings provide an awesome opportunity to connect to the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon because attendance is so international. This list includes the USA Eastern Time Zone and the local time for each meeting. They all have a similar format, a 30-minute meeting with the three daily readers and shares. Thanks for your service, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda, for sending those. I have added them to the list at therecovery.show slash online. The three meetings are Time to Reflect South Africa slash New York City. It's from 9 to 9.30 Eastern during the winter, 10 to 10.30 Eastern during the summer, 4 p.m. local time, and that is to say South Africa. And there's an ID and a link. There's Every Daily Readers Group California, which is from 11 to 11.30 a.m. Eastern time, 8 a.m. local time. Again, ID and a link. Daily Readers Scotland from 4 to 4.30 Eastern Time, 9 a.m. local time, and ID and a link listed. I believe with the Scotland one, since the U.S. and Great Britain don't go to Daylight Savings Time or Summertime in exactly the same week, there's a couple of weeks on the shoulder of each transition where the Eastern Time is going to vary. Consult your computer clock for details, I guess. The U.S. is going to Daylight Savings Time on the morning of March 13th this year. The U.K. goes to Daylight Savings Time the last Sunday in March, which would be the 27th. And then in the fall, the U.K. goes back to Standard Time on the last Sunday in October, which would be October 30th. The U.S. ends Daylight Savings Time on Sunday, November 6th. So there's a couple of weeks in the spring where the Eastern time for that meeting would change and a week in the fall when it would change. And I'm not going to try to do the math in my head about which directions things change. Like I said, your computer can tell you for sure. So thanks, Amanda, for those meetings. A half an hour with all the daily readers. Sounds like a really awesome way to maybe start the day, maybe in the middle of the day, the end of the day, depending where you are in the world, what your time zone is. So thanks. Miri says, hello, I've been listening to your podcast and I'm finding it very helpful. You read an email from someone asking for a list of encouraging responses to our loved one. Like, I think you can do this. And you mentioned they were in an attachment on another episode. I find it helpful when I'm given new phrases to try out. Alanon has given me two phrases I use. You might be right, and I made some mistakes, and I'm trying to do better. I find these useful when changing direction or patterns with my loved one. Can you please share the link with useful recovery phrases? Thank you, Mary. I've gotten a number of requests, uh, as Mary notes, one in a recent episode, and I thought, well, I should just put these on a page of their own at the website. So if you go to therecovery.show slash responses, then you will see what's there right now is a photograph of a piece of paper with a list of neutral responses like, that's interesting, let me think about that. 
and my favorite, oh, along with a number of others. I'm also asking on that page, if you have responses you'd like to add, let me know. So there you go, therecovery.show slash responses. And that's it for feedback this week. Leah, thank you. Thank you so much again for coming on The Recovery Show, sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. What is the third song that, that you picked for today? So our last song selection is Love's the Only Way by Cage the Elephant, which you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 378. And I picked this song because my husband and I exchanged coins as a way to show our commitment to each other in recovery. I gave him a coin that said one day at a time, and that's how we live our lives. He gave me a coin that said, I put my hand in yours, and we did what I couldn't do alone. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.